I'm your host, DJ, along with the money man, Frank, Leah, Matt, and Debs. We got the entire team in the house for you today for a very special individual. Y'all know who I'm talking about. We're going to intro him here in a minute. But before we do that, cabbies, Nathan, you know, we and anybody else who got something to say about this, you know, please chime in. But uh, a very special friend uh, of the show, part of Cab Fam, is uh, Miss Kelly Chase. The author of uh, UFO Rabbit Hole and her it is uh, UFO Rabbit Hole podcast uh, is hosting an event called uh, Ohio Heritage. We're gonna throw the ticker at the bottom of the screen right there. Nathan's got a visual ready for you. So Nathan, my goodness, man, that there is uh, when you look at this list of people, any UFO nerd like myself uh, wants to be there to to interact with these people. Can you uh, get us into this a little bit? Yeah, I mean, where to begin? So if you're a fan of Jeffrey Kripal, which you should be because you're here today, uh, you saw and probably heard him speak at the Inquirer Anomalous Conference in New York not too long ago, which was co-hosted uh, by our friend Kelly Chase. And of course, she is putting on this conference in Ohio with a bunch of amazing speakers. And I'm going to put the speakers list up here on screen just so you can see how many incredible names we've got here. So James Fox, uh, Dr. Prasulka, Bryce Zabel, from the Need to Know podcast, uh, Dr. Michael Masters, Micah Hanks, uh, my good friend Darren Exoacadamian, uh, of course, Kelly Chase, J. Christopher King, Phil Ford, and J.F. Martell, both from the Weird Studies podcast. So an incredible lineup. If you're looking for something to do in the spring, you're thinking about, oh, I got to plan a spring vacation. Where do I go and, and meet some people and hang out and get some great UFO content? This is it. This is the one. Uh, May fifth and sixth and that's up at uh, wright patterson air force base in fact it's hosted at the hope hotel i believe which is located directly on the base pretty incredible a lot of uh <laughs> sort of ufo lore wrapped around Wright pat that everybody's familiar with but uh i'm, I'm excited to go and uh, i know those of you who may not be able to make it in person there are also virtual tickets but we're offering a little bit of a giveaway right dj so we've got uh, a couple of all inclusive sort of passes that we're willing to give away. You want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, so what we're going to do, we have uh, two free all event passes and all you have to do is, uh, is, is basically uh, DM Nathan on the at calling beings uh, Twitter handle. Uh, basically what you're going to do is name off at least 10 of Dr. Kripal's books and if you do that, the first person to do that will win two free all-event passes uh, to this event, uh, Kelly Chase's UFO uh, Heritage Conference in Ohio. So, uh, and anybody else want, want to chime in? Anybody else have anything to say about the speakers or the event? Prime, I know you got something. Where are you at? Dude, I'm so excited for the lineup on this event. Yeah, I'm on mute so you guys can't hear the excited noises I'm making in the background, I'm like <laughs> squeaking. It, um, yeah, I'm super, super hyped for Dr. Pasolka, of course, right? She's super formative in the field. Um, everybody knows I'm 
well, maybe not everybody. This is why I added my sub ticker here about being more woo than I appear. Um, huge fan of EXO, Darren, right? Like he's super formative for me. So between those two and plus, um, look, Kelly is a fucking girl, sorry. Kelly is a girl boss of UFO Twitter, of the podcast scene. Um, I'm just delighted to see her success in this space. And I'm just genuinely so impressed with the lineup that she's managed to get for this. So all around, I think this is going to be an incredible event. Yeah, and you know something? Uh, there's only two of those speakers, the last two, Mr. Ford and Mr. Martell, that we've not had on cab. So, oh no, actually, Mr. Zabel, we haven't either. Uh, so, yeah, we might need a leg up with that, any of y'all that have uh, Bryce Zabel. So, there's only three people we haven't had, but we'll we'll get that done. Because now that I'm aware of these other uh, two gentlemen, what we'd like to, I'm sure we would want to have them on here. Uh, without further ado, um, Please, if you want to win these free passes, go ahead and DM Nathan at Calling Beings is the Twitter handle. Ten of Dr. Kripal's books, uh, you name them, and you are going to be the first one that does that. You will win free passes to this event. We will hook it up. But uh, now I think we should get into the guest of honor. What do y'all think? Do it. Let's do it. All right. This gentleman, I'll tell you what, man. He is a professor of religious studies at Rice University. This guy is so dope. He's been speaking at conferences. He's been educating and regulating for over a decade on this topic. So put your hands together for Dr. Jeff Woohoo! Can I get an amen for Jeffrey Kripal? Amen. Yes. Amen. Yes, sir. How's Good morning, going, Jeff. <laughs> Who needs coffee, right, Jeff? That's yeah. No, I need some coffee for that one. Yeah, we got you covered, Jeff. We're gonna give you all the all the stimuli you need right here. We got it for you. Not only with our questions, we've even had some of our friends give in a couple of questions because we got to open it up like that. But I'd like to kick it off, Jeff, with something that I think all of of uh, UFO Twitter uh, wants to know in in our community, because you know when you think about it, uh, there is this. This thing that uh, I think a wise man once said, a man's choice of potato chip is a window into his soul. Actually, I think I said that. But uh, <laughs> so what I think everybody wants to know, you know, on the panel and beyond is, are you a kettle chip type person? Are you a person that likes seasoning on his potato chips? Are you a just a sea salt person? Um, can you please tell us about potato chip choices? I like all potato chips. It's hard to go wrong. That's my answer. What? Really? Like you're just somebody opens up a bag and you're just going for it. You don't have a preference. No nope. problem. Nope. Salt and vinegar? What about that? Wow. I mean, no, I'm salt and vinegar is good. No, Oof, it's, all, man. it's all good. That's where I draw the line. I'm sorry. <laughs> all right, Nathan. We're going to have to cover that on a future cab when we don't have Jeff here uh, is get everybody's potato because I think it's it says a lot. I mean, personally, I'm a kettle chip with the ridges kind of a thing, just lightly salted. Uh, but uh, I, I'm glad that you're going omnidirectional when it comes to chips. I think that shows a great flexibility. Uh, but now I'll get into my real question before uh, we pass it on, and it'll just keep going like in around in a circle, Jeff. And then if you have anything you want to ask us or us to consider, uh, that can happen at any time. Um, so my question is regarding, uh, this is something that we talked about on a prior cab, and, and we didn't quite get all the way through it, although Nathan did give me a great dissertation on it, and I'd like to get your take. Um, so regarding exorcism, uh, there's a new podcast out that uh, where they're sharing stories of Father Carlos Martins uh, called uh, The Exorcist Files. 
and some hair-raising stories, to say the least, on there of uh, individuals he's interacted with. And I'm, I'm going to want to get broad on this, but I'd like to go narrow first, and then we can broaden the question out. Um, but from a narrow perspective, someone that lived in the same town as he did had a wife who was had, and if you've heard this story, uh, forgive me, I'll say it for the audience's uh, benefit. Um, this woman was trying desperately to get pregnant, and she took a dark turn. She saw some sort of a psychic or somebody who was into, you know, witchcraft and told her that you have to take a life to get a life. And she started killing bugs and then it turned into animals. And she was sort of lining this bedroom in their house with dead animals. Um, and the husband was getting really concerned and started to hear voices and so forth. He ended up finding out that he lived close to uh, Father Martin's and when spoke with him when he was cleaning out his garage. And when he came, he, he said, can you come over and, and meet my wife and just talk with her? Not that he was going over there to perform an exorcism. And upon entering the house, the, the demonic voice that we've heard about cried out as soon as he walked in in a T-shirt and jeans. And so my question to you, the narrow question is, how do you think that whatever that spirit or demon that... Uh, apparently was inhabiting that woman knew that and what does that tell us if anything about uh what those spirits are that's a little question right dj you just, you just <laughs> well one. we could do the narrow question how well, did that yeah i i'm happy to try to take a step i'll say two things um neither of which is really an answer to your question because i don't have an answer to your question dj i don't know what that voice was or what that entity is. But I do, I do have some things to say about the phenomena of demonic possession. And I'll, I guess there's three things I'll say. Um, so Thursday night, I spoke at Arizona State University on a panel on space exploration with Brother Consolmagno from the Vatican Observatory. And the question was, one of the questions was, what religious doctrine will need to be the most uh, transformed or changed if we encounter extraterrestrial intelligence. And my answer was demonology. Um, I personally think demonology is a big mistake um, for the most part. Um, I, I think human beings suffer intensely and dissociate in various ways and that possession is part of that that human suffering, that that trauma. It's not to say there aren't discarnate beings in the room or in the person. I'm not denying that, but I think the access to these questions is one of compassion and sympathy, and not, frankly, demonization. I think it makes the situation far worse, actually. Um, so I'll say that. The other thing I'll say is, you know, I've learned a lot from my colleagues who study demonic possession. And one of the most profound things I've ever heard about it is from a medievalist named Barbara Newman, who basically points out that there's a lot of theorization of possession in the medieval world. And at the bottom of it is this notion that for something to possess another entity, you have to share a nature with that entity. Possession implies unity actually. Um, and 
you know, Barbara goes back to the nature of God, actually. Um, and and I, I don't want to engage in God talk here this early in the interview, but I do think possession gives witness to a deeper kind of of, of unity between different entities or different kinds of presences, including human presences. Um, and I worry, DJ, I worry a lot about demonic language. I think it, it always, it almost always makes the situation worse. And it's often a kind of religious projection. Um, I, I study religions and I know that religions demonize one another. They call each other's gods, demons. And, I worry about that. I just, I'm just really concerned about that. So there's a bit of brand, uh, brand awareness uh, that's in, uh, embedded in that podcast, trying to get that out there. A little bit of, of, of branding on probably on the church's part. Um, I won't uh, take up because uh, we've got a lot to get through and not a lot of time. Let's go right to uh, Money Nathan. Thanks, DJ. So Jeff, yeah, great to have you with us. Uh, so when we t- told our audience that uh, we were having you on. Uh, somebody on Twitter posted an image of Professor X. who probably had that uh, <laughs> association before. I know you've uh, talked a little bit about the X-Men and, and your interest in that, uh, some crossover issues. And so I think this is a good segue to kind of what you just talked about, because uh, Professor X, right, and the X-Men is sort of trying to help these individuals manage their abilities. And some of those abilities come with, uh, you know, the gift of helping people, but also the possibility for intense destruction, um, and there are a lot of different sort of philosophies at play within the X-Men in terms of, uh, you know, all mutants are bad, all mutants are good. There's a little bit in between. So what would it mean, uh, you know, I know you've put some thought into this, to, to a world that might be uh, a future world that we're moving into, where we maybe more readily acknowledge that there are people with, you know, psyability of some kind, or there is some sort of uh, maybe genetic manipulation at play, that there are people with just differences and and we're having trouble i think managing the differences we have today imagine what that world might look like so what do you think would be a good sort of uh, rubric to use to or think about how we might bring these folks together what learnings might you have from uh, from professor x or your own studies there yeah so i do talk about the x men mythology a lot i i love it um i try to inhabit the mythical role of professor xavier so the the projection is not just a projection it's a <laughs> it's, it's 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 what i call a midlife regression you know it's back, <laughs> back back to 10 years old is what it is um but the reason i love the mythology is because the mutant students of professor x are all frankly messed up and they don't get along and they disagree profoundly and the main protagonist of, of Xavier, who's also his dearest friend, is Magneto. And Magneto, of course, represents this very Nietzschean, you know, screw the humans, let's let's take over the world kind of thing. And Xavier inhabits the much more kind of liberal um, professor kind of position. And I think both of those are, are live options for people. Um, and I think it's the debate um, or the conversation between Xavier and Magneto that that matters. Um, and that whole mythology is driven by those differences. And again, I don't have some kind of simplistic or naive or utopian answer to how we all get along. But, but my one answer, which I, I do really um, think is true, is 
we have to keep everything on the table and we have to stop dismissing and demeaning these people with abilities because that's dishonest. Uh, it's intellectually dishonest. It's morally damaging. Um, and again, it's part of this demonization that we were talking about earlier. I mean, historically, magicians and, and sorcerers and witches have not been treated well for thousands of years by, by civilization, frankly. So that X-Men mythology is not, it's not new. It wasn't invented in 1963. It's, it's millennial, it's millennia old. And, uh, you know, I see my own little role is just kind of begging to take these experiences seriously, by which I do not mean naively or uncritically. I mean, sympathetically and as something that actually happened you know, when somebody reports a precognitive dream, they they had a precognitive dream. Stop calling it a coincidence. That's that that's fake. That's an intellectual cop out. Let's let's think with that and 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 adjust our worldview accordingly. So that's not an answer to your question, but I think it's a beginning, um, and I think it's kind of where we're at. We're kind of at a beginning. Yeah, thank you. I love that. I uh, love yeah. your shirt, Doctor Kripal. It does look a lot like mine, so I took that. <laughs> Uh, Debs. <laughs> yeah, so I have a billion questions, but I would like to start with one of the more basic questions. You have an upcoming Archives of the Impossible sequence coming out. Could you please tell people what to expect with what's coming out in the future with Archives of the Impossible? Yeah, thanks, Leah. Um, so, you know, one works where one is. Um, one doesn't work where one not it, when one, where one isn't. And I happen to live and work in the academy. And so I see it as a really useful thing to get academics to take these things seriously and as part of their work. And so about eight years ago, we started something at Rice called Archives of the Impossible, which is a physical archive. It's It, it now consists of over a million documents uh, and multiple donors, including Jacques Vallée and, and Whitley Strieber and and uh, Ed May of the remote viewing program. And they continue to come in, by the way, um, and we continue to process them. And last year, I decided it was time to have a conference and announce this to the world. It was still COVID, you know? So it was a bit of a challenge, but we had over 1,700 people register for that event and 200 people show up. And, you know, that may not sound like a lot to, to your listeners or viewers. That's like mind blowing in an academic world. That's like wild uh, sort of off off the charts um, interest. And when we posted the plenaries, we got we've had over a quarter of a million views. So that's like really important. And so I decided we were going to do it again. And so we're going to do it again this year, May 11th through the 13th. Anyone can register to attend digitally. Uh, it's impossiblearchives.org to go and register. Um, we'll have to cap the physical presence at about 200, 220, somewhere in there. And that's just because of food. <laughs> I mean, we can't, <laughs> I can't I can't afford to feed everyone after about that many about that many people. So um it and we've invited, we I I've made a very conscious decision not to and reinvite the people that were there last year, which, which were a lot of the, uh, the donors essentially. Um, this year we've invited a lot of people 
who are working on these issues in the academy in a very serious way. And there's going to be six plenaries and about about 16, what I'm calling flash talks, and a couple panels. Uh, and it's over three days, and everyone's welcome. And I, I hope I hope you all join us. I'll tell you what, Debs would like to go there more than like I would want to go to Naples and have a genuine Neapolitan <laughs> pizza right now. That that's because she just lives for basically what you're putting together. So, <laughs> so well, you think know, about going, <laughs> DJ. When last year when we did this, I mean, I, we had people in tears, and I don't mean in a bad way. I mean in a good way. They were just so moved by the fact that we were taking so seriously these experiences and that a research university had invested a, quite a bit of money in archiving them. I mean, this is forever ostensible. I mean, nothing's forever, right? But this is for many, many future generations, which is how we're going to really do this thing, I think. Um, we have to do something that's going to last for, for decades or centuries and not just one life. It's so interesting that you have a counterpart in the Bigfoot community named Dr. Jeff Meldrum from the University of Idaho, who has the most prolific collection of archived Bigfoot prints that have been casted, I think, in the world. And so it's so funny that you have an archive that's prolific in our in the UFO community, and then Dr. Meldrum has one for, for Bigfoot. So I love that. We're, we're trying to bring these universes together, Bigfoot, UFOs, and paranormal. But uh, yeah. before it, uh, yes, sir. No, no, I just said, yeah. yeah. I mean, last year we had a number of, of archivists, by the way, from, from Canada, the U.S., and Europe. And a lot of people are doing this, by the way. Uh, this is this is very much a renaissance, I think. Yeah. Um, before I take up any more time, we got to get to Leah Prime. Go ahead, ma'am. Wonderful. Um, I will add to my actual first career, I was a rare book and manuscripts librarian. Um, so the work at Archives of the Impossible, uh, on a personal note, is extremely, extremely compelling to me. Um, I was actually going to ask you about spiritual emergence. Uh, I'm very invested in this subject uh, and psychedelia and exotic states of consciousness. And it seems to me that modernity has very few narratives or scripts for navigating and integrating the ecstatic or transcendent experience. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about what resources, thinkers, or works may be useful for people that have these kinds of experiences and want to make sense of them. Yeah, I'm concerned about that too, Leah. I mean, mm -hmm. I live and work in Texas, um, and a lot of people have had very traumatic religious paths. Um, and a lot of people who write me or come to Rice have had tra these transformative transcendent experiences that you're referring to, but they don't have a context for them. And they're often framed traumatically or pathologically by secular culture, including, by the way, by the academy. I, yes. I, I'm not going to suggest that my colleagues are friendly to these things. They're not. They're they're dismissive and demeaning um, for the most part. And so part of the work here is simply to authorize people to tell their stories and to affirm their stories, but you know, not to again sign our names to whatever the content of the stories are, because the stories differ. They they, they differ and they conflict. Um, but again, I think a beginning is just taking people seriously. There are communities of spiritual emergence that have been active. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with them, Leah. J. Christopher King helps lead mm -hmm. one of them. See, he's coming to the conference you advertise. 
Um, there are also a number of spiritual teachers in, in the world who are very open to this. I'm thinking of Jeff Carrera, for example, who runs his own school. Um, Jean, uh, Sean Hasborn, uh, his Exo Studies program. I'm, I'm thinking of a lot of people here that, that are out there. But the truth is, we don't, we don't have anything that's culturally broad or established or integrated to handle this. We, we, and again, this goes back to the demonological conversation. We tend to demonize these things. And, and, we, and that, 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 I think, is a big concern because our older stories simply don't cut it anymore, and they don't work, and they exclude people. And, and I think part of the, again, part of the process is just helping to authorize a set of stories that don't do that. And Dr. Jeff, Julie said that your shirt is lovely and mine is just loud. So we're going to have to compare notes on clothiers after the show. Make sure I get some tips from you. Uh, and also, I just want to shout out Kelly Chase, uh, the the uh, uh, organizer of this great event in Ohio, was in the chat. So shout out to uh, Kelly, uh, whom I know Dr. Kripal knows. And let's get in. Uh, let's get Matt Knapp in there. Yeah, so many questions. Um I, I guess my first question, kind of going back to the comic book thing, because huge comic book fan, uh, always have been. Uh, whenever you, people talk about uh, the Bible and religion in general being, for instance, the, the Christian Bible being the inspired word of God, do you believe that works by fiction writers and artists in general can sometimes possibly be inspired by some sort of greater being or consciousness and it's not actually them creating it as much as they are just a conduit for the information yes thank you <laughs> Matt, Matt I, I wrote a whole book on that very idea it's up there on the wall mutants and mystics I mean the whole the whole book and by the way I've never been the subject of a, a prize or a, a contest so thank you for that um, yes sir um Listen, uh, again, this is part of my midlife regression. Um, <laughs> I, I wrote this book because, well, here, here's the story. Here's the story, Matt. I think it's actually very relevant. I wrote a history of the human potential movement or the American counterculture back in 2007 called Esalen, America and the Religion of No Religion. And it was basically about religiously unaffiliated people who had ecstatic or altered states and reframed them and created something called the human potential movement, which then eventually morphed into the new age movement and now is presently the spiritual but not religious demographic. Um, what one of the central ideas of the human potential movement was that parapsychological abilities like clairvoyance or, or perhaps even levitation or bilocation are evolutionary buds. They're signs of our future evolution of some kind of future human. And they haven't been integrated yet into the, into the culture. And when I was finishing that book in 07, I realized, oh my God, that's the X-Men mythology. Uh, the the human potential movement is just it's the X Men only only a, these people are serious about this and and so I got to, to, to eventually to the question of well what if a lot of the science fiction is perfectly serious and what if it comes out of the altered states of the the writers and the artists who who created it and so I wrote this book mutants and mystics and it turns out that in many cases that is absolutely true 
Uh, and one of the, uh, the major cases here is Philip K. Dick, who um, wrote a lot of science fiction stories that then became, have become Hollywood movies. Yes. But Hollywood has never dealt with the metaphysical opening or, or experience of transcendence that Dick knew in 1974, and to which he traced all of his science fiction writing, by the way. Um, so the thing that drove Philip K. Dick is precisely the thing that our culture won't touch. Mm -hmm. And yet it's at the secret or it's at the core of, of American science fiction, I, I personally think. Um, and so that's a long answer to your short question. Um, but you can read the book. You, if you want 300 pages on, on, on my answer, that's, and there's a lot of cool pictures in there too, by the way. I'm going to say I, there is a podcast I heard yesterday from Jeff back in 2011 with some guys that were rooted in uh, comics and so, uh, science fiction. And, mm -hmm. uh, of course, you had written a book about that. And so it was really cool to hear that because we could get off on a little different tangent. And, and that was just shows that you're a multi-tool player, Jeff. <laughs> I, I love hearing Philip K. Dick as part of this conversation, too. The Ballast Trilogy and his exegesis are par excellence. Yeah, so Leah, I mean, so the exegesis is his journals, his private journals mm -hmm. that he more or less started after Vallis. The Vallis stands for Vast Active Living Intelligence System. Yep. It's, his, it's his metaphysical inrush. And one of my former PhD students uh, is a man named Eric Davis, who writes a lot about this and who was part of the yes. team that transcribed those journals. Yes. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I, you're touching on all my favorites right now. I love Eric <laughs> Davis too. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, 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 as my people say, I'm felling. Like this is killing me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we could do that. We could do that for a long time. Um, yeah, I think there's something really core. And you know, my basic view of the paranormal is that it's essentially a story telling itself, and that we're caught in a story, and we often don't understand what the story is. We're like, what the hell was that? You know, but it's it's like being a character in a movie, and you're kind of waking up inside the movie, and you're like, what is going on? And who is who is projecting me or who is writing me? I I really sincerely think that's what the paranormal is about on some level. And I think we're we're kind of at a we're at a turning point where the older stories of our cultures and civilizations just aren't working. And so consciousness is doing what it's always done is tell stories and try to get itself out of this this suffering, this this horrible rut or 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 hole or abyss we're in right now. And uh, a gentleman right here at the bottom of the screen, uh, UFO thinker Frank is one of the best there is at contextualizing the news and UFOs and breaking it down and trying to look at it from different angles and uh, bringing on people to offer those perspectives. So, uh, Frank, are, are the best drummer in ufology. Please go ahead, sir. <laughs> Thank you very much, DJ. Too kind, as always. Um, but I also wanted to just shout out your your shirt there, DJ, as well. Both wonderful oh, shirts. <laughs> there's, there's room for all types of colors and patterns. So There you go, yeah. Julie. <laughs> Um, but yeah, my my question uh, was about how um, technology um, could could affect how we interact with the universe as we move along into the future. Um, technologies like Neuralink, you know, could potentially allow us to add to and enhance our kind of natural senses, maybe enabling us to experience parts of reality that were 
previously unknown and considered paranormal. Do you think this this will happen, and how could that affect the the human experience? So let me let me say something positive about that, and then let me say something negative. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I I personally think. Well, let's let's, let's stick with the positive first. Um, I think the big player here is science and technology. And I think we now understand ourselves in, in a very different universe, you know, after modern cosmology and the Big Bang and cosmic evolution and Darwin and biological evolution and DNA and the computer and on and on and on. I don't think there's any reason to go back. Um, and I think all of those technological and scientific revolutions have completely changed us and changed the stories that we're, we're telling. So that's... That's the positive side. The negative side is that people are fetishizing technology and particularly the computer. Um, and they, I think, are vastly misreading um, impossible phenomena as purely technological. When a lot of these phenomena clearly have paranormal aspects that are just getting sliced away. Uh, and the, the UFO is a perfect example of that. The U.S. military and our politicians and a lot of the public are perfectly fine, I think, with discussions of UFOs as machines in the sky, as, as threats, as they like to say, to, to increase their military budgets. But if you talk to experiencers and people who have had contact with these, these things, they have paranormal effects. You know, people start to experience synchronicities. They see Bigfoot, by the way, or they see cryptids, or they they bring back a kind of haunting to their families, even thousands thousands of miles away. But all of those paranormal dimensions get sliced away, and I get really um, crabby about that. Um, and I also think a lot of the AI discussion today is based on a materialist model of mind or consciousness. Uh, and I think that's the exact reverse of the, of, the, of the situation. I do not think the brain creates consciousness. I think the brain mediates or translates it. And once you make that move or make that flip, then the whole AI discussion becomes something completely different. Uh, AI can certainly uh, mimic or pretend to be conscious, but it, it can't be conscious because consciousness is not a material product. Um, so that, that's a philosophical argument, um, Frank. Um, and I think that's the good and, and the bad of, of the technological assumptions of people. Uh, that was actually Dan Warren's question as well that he had asked. Uh, those of you who know the fifth pillar of emphasis on TikTok, Dan Warren is another member of CabFam. And he says uh, he asked you, is the brain a, a receiver or generator, or both of consciousness. So I think you just answered that. It's a yeah, yeah. And the reason I say that, Dan, is, um, of course, I don't know. Again, but the, the idea that the brain is a receiver or translator of consciousness puts on the table all the paranormal phenomena I want to talk about. Whereas the idea that the brain is a producer takes it all off the table. And <laughs> so that is my one criterion of truth is. Models that take things off the table are, are almost certainly not correct. And models that put things back on the table because they actually happen are probably way closer to the truth. 
And, and again, I don't have that truth, but, but I know what takes things off the table and I know what puts things on the table. And that reductive model of mind, it just takes everything off the table. And that's why I call it the impossible because it's impossible in, in, in that reductive model. It, it's not happening, it can't happen, but, but it does happen. So clearly the reductive model is wrong. I, I don't I don't see a way around that. If someone can point to me, you know, and show how that's wrong, I, I'm I'm all ears, but I I just don't see it. I like to say to people, I like to say that um and I kind of got this off of how a lot of experiencers point to uh that certain intelligences, uh if they abduct a person, will try to remove some of their biology. So by that I can infer I don't know what they want to do with that, but I can infer that they find some value in it that we don't know what that value is. Mm-hmm. But I like to think, or at least I, I think, that if, if uh, another intelligence produced some sort of a AI-derived uh, humanoid figure and it went to a U2 concert with me, they could program it to kind of dance to the beat and to you know, execute a smile and to look happy, but they can't make it feel, I don't think. They yeah. can't, because I don't even know what a feeling is. I don't even know how to explain a feeling. So therefore, I don't think they could program it to feel. And so I'm just putting the two together and saying perhaps that's why they want to make something that is both biological and electromechanical so that it can it can have something that, you know, if they take something from us, maybe they can use it so that it, it can feel. But I don't think zeros and ones can create that. I think it exists somewhere between zeros and ones. Yeah. And of course, we made up the zeros and ones, DJ. I mean, right. We we created the computer. Sorry. I mean, so, you know, if you talk to mathematicians, they're really um, some of them go philosophical very quickly and they become what we call platonic. They they think numbers exist in, in some other realm and that that, again, we're discovering mathematics we're not creating it that's the real that's the real distinction here and to go back to our earlier conversation you know one of the primary features of revelation in the history of religions is that it's passive or it's given to a person it's not something you make up or 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 create out of nothing and so when you know someone who's experienced a ufo or experienced a precognitive dream tells me about it, they are never the ones doing that. It's being done to them. And um, that to me is a clear sign that something is being revealed. And, and I don't mean that in a, in a traditional religious way, um, but I think the traditional religious ways have something to teach us. I love it. Two people on this panel have been to seminary and you and Nathan are it. So Nathan, <laughs> go ahead, brother. <laughs> Um, and definitely goes so many different directions here. But and I was thinking the other day, uh, I wonder to what extent have you seen a change in the students that you teach uh, in the last? I mean, geez, if we just take since the the 2017 article that everybody likes to talk about as the, the this yeah. landmark moment, you know, what kind of students are you seeing now? What are, what questions are they asking that are that you can tell? Oh, a shift is happening here. Um, yeah. And there is this sort of um, interplay, right, between what we say is possible and then what people bring to the table offering as possible. And that that stretches the possibility space. I would say so. I've been teaching since 
about 1990, so for almost a quarter of a century now. And I've seen a lot of trans, a lot of change and a lot of different generations of a lot of different students. Um, 9-11 was devastating, frankly. Uh, the pandemic has been as much or more devastating. Um, the present generation of, of young people, and I'm, I'm going to generalize here, and they need to speak for themselves, but I'm, I'm just observing them as a, an old guy, you know, um, is one of despair, frankly, uh, wow. and, and a kind of a kind of nihilism. I would describe it as nihilism. Um, they don't see a shared cultural story that is uh, positive. Uh, and ecstatic and and cosmic. They see a lot of critiques, all of which are entirely convincing and true and just and moral. But all of those critiques don't add up to any positive vision for them. Um, and I think that's a huge problem. I, I think my own tribe, um, the Academy, is very good at taking things apart. We can take anything apart. You want something taken apart? Come to us, we'll take it apart for you. But we are absolutely horrible at putting things back together again. We have no, we have no shared vision, we have no story. Um, and, and the young people pick that up very quickly. Um, and they know that from their own youth, their own teenage years. I mean, they're, they're in despair. They're, and and if they're not in despair, they're completely indifferent. And they're just focusing on things like, how do I get a job and how do I make a living and how do I find a mate? And, you know, just basic, basic life challenges. They're not, if they think about these bigger, bigger life meaning issues, they, they will, they will find nothing. Um, so that, that's, I think where we're at, Nathan. And, and I think that's, that's a huge, I see it as a huge problem. I would like to. I'm sorry, Nathan. If you got a follow, I, I just go ahead, sir. Well, I, I, I am a little curious in terms of uh, the work that you've put into the world, archives, uh, the superhumanities, uh, mutes and mystics, you know, people that read that material and want to study with you, want to, uh, you know, what, what what kind of research avenues are they pursuing in this space? Where are we pushing the the, the content? In other words, mm -hmm. yeah. So the reason I write books is because they do work 24 hours a day all around the world without my, without my attention or my ability. I, I'm a, I'm a really dull, ordinary person. I need a certain amount of sleep and my days are taken up with, you know, the th same things that take up everybody's days. But the books um, is really where my heart and mind are. They're expressions of me. And people are reading those all over the world, 24 hours a day, as I said. Um, and I, ca I can't even deal with the responses because there's, it's too many. There's, it's, too, it's too much. But it's good. It's good. I think books are, are magical. And I don't mean that in a, a metaphorical way. I mean that in a real way. I think they authorize people's experiences and they give people a way to think about their experiences. As a teacher, I know that when young people come to me, I'm not there to tell them the truth of things. 
I'm there to help them articulate their own questions and their own doubts and their own convictions. And they're often extremely grateful for that. Um, and I think the same is true of, of writing and publishing. You're, you're there, the audience or the readership is, is really relating it to their own lives at the end of the day. Um, so I think that's certainly why I do what I do. I, the, the bigger message of I think what I do is that we're in the beginning of a new story and paranormal events are trying to tell us little things about this story. And no, we don't have that story. It's coming together. It might take generations. It might take centuries. But we're going to get to this, this new story. And it's not going to be pretty. You know, the older stories aren't going to behave. They're not just going to roll over and give up. They're going to keep claiming their authority over us and claiming that they're true and everybody else is untrue. And, I, you know, that's just that's the way it is. That's the way it's always been. I would argue that uh, dull and ordinary doesn't create uh, these writings that you have. That's part <laughs> that's of your. Everybody says that's what Willie Stuber says too. By the it's, way, it, you know, I, I've these guys have heard me say this before. I believe the purpose of artwork is to move emotion, and that emo, that artwork could be on stage, it could be on screen, it could be in the written form, and it could be you too making people cry. Uh, because they're able to, and the Beatles, right? We're very familiar with uh, them able to move emotion. And what you're doing is is really no different. Um, yeah, so. I I joke about that. I'll tell you a funny story about the shirt or shirts. I, I wear these shirts intentionally. Um, I gave a talk once at, at, again, it was at Arizona State for some reason. This was years mm -hmm. ago. And we beamed it all over the world to get questions like you're doing. And we got one question and the question is, where do you get those shirts? And, you know, so I just answered, I said, well, it's across security in Bush airport in Houston, Texas. And that was the end. That was the end of the Q and a session right there. Um, <laughs> but on a serious note, I, I do. So I'm not banal and ordinary in the sense that I take other people's extraordinary experiences as actually have happened as part of our world. And they are really extraordinary. And I've had a few myself, which make me sympathetic to those experiences, but I don't claim, you know, any kind of special status. And that hence my, my argument of being banal and ordinary, but I think just accepting that these things happen and then trying to integrate them into a, a culture or a, or a field or, or, or um, a personal life is, is, is really hard. Um, and, and I think that's what we're all, what a lot of us are trying to do, inclu including you all. I think that's what you're trying to do probably on this podcast. Um, so yeah, the, 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 you know, I always have this conversation with Whitley Strieber, who by the way, is a freaking radioactive generator. That, that guy is like, I mean, he is, things happen around him. And, you know, I'm always joking with him, like, Willie, no, I don't experience these things. This is not happening to me. This is happening to you. <laughs> this is happening because of you. And and uh, so there's you know there's that there's that kind of playfulness. But but I think it's I think the weirdness to to use um, the weird studies colleagues language is certainly in the in the books, and 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 it's designed to be there and it's designed to do things. It's not designed just to describe. It's designed to manifest the weird and not just talk about it. 
I love it. Uh, we're happy to sing your praises. You don't have to. So we, we, we got you covered on that. Let's go to, uh, uh, first of all, I would just want to shout out James Iandoli, who set this up for us. And always on cab, we will shout out people who help us get guests. And we're not trying to make the audience think that we have the kind of reach where we get anybody. We rely on others and others uh, rely on us as well. So thank you, James Iandoli, my New York Italian brother. And let's let's go with... Uh, uh, Debs, please. Yeah, so I want to step back for a moment on the despair comment. I deal with youth. I've seen a lot of different, I would say, incarnations of what's going on with youth. And on a positive note, I feel like they're at a we're done with that crap mode of thinking and they're changing things. They're yeah. like, and they're accepting a lot of things as fact that are historical our people historically would not have accepted. Like there's a lot of conversations about the paranormal and they're not freaking out. And this is just from what I've seen. But um, I wanted to touch on the fact that I see those youth in a mental health capacity. And you deal with a lot of people who are experiencers. And on a personal note, I like recently just had like a whole bunch of what I would call like downloads that kind of upset me actually. Um, I would say that I got a little like stressed out <laughs> because it was happening so quickly. And what do you suggest to people who are having sort of difficulty with their mental health related to their experiences? What would you say that they can do to accept or come to terms with what's going on? So, yeah, I always say, I always say one thing here. I, uh, I always say, please, be both and and not either or in other words you know the paranormal phenomena can and do appear within mental illness um consistently and commonly that's not to romanticize or idealize the mental illness but it's also not to deny the paranormal phenomena i think the phenomena are are often symptomatic they're signs of the breakdown um, and again, because I see the body and brain as a filter or reducer or translator of consciousness, any way that you can compromise or any way that that body and brain is compromised is a potential access point to the paranormal. So uh, psychedelics can do that and do do that. Mental illness can do that and does do that. So can near-death experiences, car accidents, heart attacks, you know, meditation can do that if you do it long enough and, and with enough discipline. You have to somehow um, get past or, or beyond the social ego to, to access these states. But that does not mean that these states are, are useful or positive for the social ego. Um, and so, again, I think this is where compassion and sympathy comes in. And where, to go back to our first question, where the demonological language is a real harm. Um, so, you know, my first piece of advice was have compassion on yourself, think in terms of both and, and find a, a therapist who's, who's sympathetic to these states, which I know is really hard. That's, that's a really hard, hard thing. But I, I think there are, I know there are such therapists out there and, uh, so I would, I would, I would seek out, you know, somebody who's, who's into integration and, and not demeaning or dismissal. 
Deb is one of those therapists, by the way. <laughs> well, there you go. So Deb, you're one of them. But I mean, there are there are lots of ther- psychotherapists like that. And particularly in the Jungian community, I've found actually um, for a variety of historical reasons, but not, not not just restricted to the Jungian community. All right, let's uh, we we only get through. We got three uh, three more questions, so let's get in there with uh, Miss Leah Prime. Wonderful, thank you. Um, this is actually a bit of a piggyback on what has been discussed the last few minutes. Um, I want to give a shout out to Jay Shank, who I had on my show recently to discuss art as paranormal experience. Um, I loved what you guys were talking about with music and art. Um, so in The Trickster and the Paranormal, Gregory Hansen's book, his analysis about anti-structure argues that societies move basically towards not having room for spiritual experience. Yeah. Um, and simultaneously, we're obviously in the midst of this rise in spirituality and in the middle of the psychedelic renaissance. Um, and, and these two elements, of course, seem to be refactoring people's ontologies on scales that honestly, especially modernity, are basically unprecedented. So I'm curious about what your thoughts are on navigating the tension between the demands of modern life capitalist life, quite frankly, while also cultivating the depths of spiritual experience. Um, This is much more like less of an academic question and more of a personal one. Yeah. So a couple things. Um, So first of all, I do think with Hansen that the paranormal is trickster-like by nature. It's elusive. Um, And so when I hear people say things like, oh, we're going to explain this or we're going to find a cause, I'm just like, no, you're not. It's not going to happen. And and it shouldn't happen, frankly, because whatever intelligence is beaming through or speaking in these moments is not a cause or a mechanism. It's it's a form of intelligence or consciousness. So I I do think the elusive or trickster element is is part of the, or, or the absurd element is part of the equation. I also... Leah, I also firmly think that paranormal phenomena happen for a reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are trying to communicate to us. They're trying to speak some sign or some message. We often don't know what that message or communication is, but that to ignore them is the wrong response. Um, But I also think to believe them is often the wrong response. And, And by that, I mean, you know, John Kill used to say belief is the enemy. And what he meant was be wary of the content of the phenomena. You're not denying the phenomena happen. You're just wary of the content and you're holding back from signing your name to whatever is appearing. Um, And I think that's a really wise way to integrate these things into, into ourselves. I don't know about modern culture. I think capitalism and science and technology are, are pretty dismissive and, and pretty brutal, frankly, when it comes to these things. Um, I also think we live in a spiritually stupid uh, culture. Um, impoverished. Yeah, it's completely impoverished. <laughs> um, and that's not a, I'm not looking back to some previous religious era as the answer. I don't think that's our answer. I think the way, the way, the answer is to move forward and to not be so naive and silly and stupid about these things. Um, but to do that, you got to listen to them and, and you've got to read and you've got to think. And I, I think it takes a lot of cultural change to do that. Um, so, I, I mean, again, this is why I think people should read books, frankly. Get off the freaking Internet. Get off yourself. Yes, yes, and, yes. And read, read <laughs> a book. And, 
and 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 spend hours and hours and hours with that other human being who's probably spent five to ten to twenty years thinking about this topic. Yes, and you're you're not going to get that in a in a on Twitter. You're not going to get it, <laughs> gonna get it on a TED talk, by the way. You're not no, going to. Of course not. You you are going to get it through this old fashioned magical technology called the book. Yes. Um, and so I'm a I'm a big believer in that. That might sound old fashioned. Uh, and don't read a book online either. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Jeff. Every word, man. Yes. <laughs> I got to touch the library. Dude, I am the librarian. Yes, books are. You know, so you know, Leah. So this is significant. So our first donor, the the man who began our archives of the impossible, was Jacques Vallée, mm -hmm. and. It took us about four or five years to negotiate that gift, which, by the way, is on a moratorium, so nobody can look at it. But, yeah. But what was so fascinating about Jacques was he had what I would call a psychometric view of archives. Mm -hmm. And by, by that, I mean psychometry is this, this technique where a psychic will hold a scarf or a piece of clothing of a, of a person and be able to read off what has happened to that particular person. So Jacques really, I think, feels and thinks that material objects carry the intentions or the, the consciousness of the people who produce them. And so his archives is actually filled with letters and case files that he, of course, himself handled for decades. And he thinks that there's something really special about these physical objects. And, and the archivists rice as well, they're actually not interested in collecting books in particular because, you know, anybody can get a book on eBay or something or, or a books, but they're, what they're really interested in is rare items that don't exist anywhere else in the world. You know, people's papers, people's cool. letters. Yes. I'll tell you what, I uh, just want to say to the audience out there, we will announce the winner of the free pat all event passes uh at the at the end of the show nathan will check the uh, dms and and let us know who won we'll announce it here and then obviously we'll contact you individually and let you know that you're going to be going to see kelly chase up in ohio and all these speakers it's going to be awesome plus you're going to see money nathan there uh he may do a couple announcements on stage and exo academia and company so and i might even be there i don't know um, so <laughs> anyway, um, let's press on with, uh, Mr. Matt Knapp, please. You know, you touched on something earlier, uh, with the comment about Whitley being this, you know, radioactive, radioactive producer, uh, having things happen around him all the time. I grew up, uh, experiencing things at a very early age, uh, to the point where anytime I tried to share it, uh, and quite frankly, I was trying to reach out to people because I was afraid of what was happening to me. Mm -hmm. I was very young experiencing these things and trying to understand them with a child's mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, it forced me away from it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I retreated, I avoided it. And perhaps that's why uh, whenever I found myself in the field of Bigfoot and cryptids, I kind of latched onto it because this was an opportunity where there are tracks. Look, I can show you this was here. Yeah, uh, I was able to somewhat prove it and support, you know, my claims and find community and everything else, which 
I think draws a lot of experiences or whatever you want to call people who go through these things, uh, searching for that community of belief. Why do you think some people are these conduits like this where they do experience things all the time, whereas you have other people who might experience one or nothing in their life? So, okay. Um, I have a, a kind of philosophical answer. It goes back to this filter thesis that I was talking about, Matt, you know, where the body and the brain is a, is a receiver or a reducer or a translator of consciousness, not a producer. And the basic answer, which comes out of modern philosophy, a man named Charles Taylor, but also people like Barbara Newman, again, the medievalist, is I think modern people are just thicker um, and, and less porous than uh, medieval people or, or perhaps people from other cultures who have not been conditioned and socialized into the fear and the denial that you spoke about so eloquently. I mean, you, you were once very porous and then you learned not to be because you learned that your family or your, your surrounding culture was not. And so I just think we're a lot less porous uh, and a lot less permeable than, than we used to be. But I do think we're also very different and that some people are porous and permeable for sometimes psychological or social reasons, sometimes be, uh, often because of trauma, by the way, um, and that they learn to turn the trauma into something positive or not. You know, when, when I sit down with an experiencer, there's actually two things that I'm listening for. One is trauma which almost always comes out eventually. And the other is sexuality, which also almost always comes out. And so I think these are the two, uh, they're, not, they're not portals, but they're, they kind of are portals of, of, of these experiences. And, and I also think this is why people who inhabit sexualities and genders that are not normative are often much more open to this, frankly. Because they're often they're often more porous or permeable or you know open to these other realities, um, so I think that's that's a big part of it. Um, and I think the you finding the cryptid community, you know, you were naturally probably drawn to that because you were trying to integrate these experiences you had as a as a small boy that were then you know repressed again by by your culture. And. I think that is an amazing answer. I, I, I know why people cry now. Exactly. <laughs> he moved, he moves emotion, right? Yeah. His artwork yeah. moves emotion. Yeah. Well, emotion's a big part of this. You know, I mean, I think um I think people do cry because they they open up, you know, and and it's like, oh my God, that makes so much sense. And you know, then and and again, that's what I said about being a teacher or a writer. You're really just giving people a vocabulary and a way of thinking that that makes sense to them. You're not. You're not. I'm not proclaiming some truth I have that you don't. Well, earlier DJ mentioned not knowing where feelings come from, emotion, not being able to explain it, and everything you're talking about exists in that realm of human beings. Uh, yeah. feelings and emotions and things like that, creativity, all those things to me come from the same place, and I definitely see the correlation between 
that aspect of being human and the realm of the paranormal and things of that nature. This, this is why I get so upset with the debunking community. You know, they'll say really stupid things like, well, you can't produce this in a laboratory, therefore it's not real. <laughs> Preach. And I'm like, well, yeah. of course you can't produce it in the laboratory yeah. because the laboratory makes it go away. You know, yes. and, you know, I always point to the coinage of the word telepathy. Uh, which was coined by a, a classicist, by the way, a reader of Greek and Latin named Frederick Myers in, in 1882. And it means pathos at a distance. That's what it means. And he related it to, to eros or to love. And, you know, Myers' argument was actually what's going on here is two emotionally untangled people are communicating on levels that they're not even aware of. And I'm just going to call this telepathy, but we don't actually know what it is. And so I think this is kind of the beginning of this kind of language, but it it affirms the role of emotion and, and frankly, love uh, uh, early on that just goes over the heads of, of a lot of people today. They, you know, they think it's about winning money on the stock market or predicting what's going to appear on a deck of cards or something. And I'm just like, that is not what this is about. You well, know. the first thing science does is remove emotion from the equation. I know. And that's why they deny this exists. You know, the, my argument is what you are doing is you're going to the North Pole to prove the existence of zebras. And <laughs> guess what? You're not going to find any zebras on the North Pole. And therefore, you're going to say there are no zebras. I like, <laughs> that doesn't follow, folks. You, you are removing the very context that express these phenomena if you want to know where these what these phenomena are go to where they appear which is in suffering traumatized sick and dying human or people in crisis people in transition um and of course no irb or institutional review board at a university is going to approve that by the way you you actually can't kill people or or make them sick to to study them um you you just can't, and so and so this stuff is is um, becomes impossible. You know that's again that's why I use the phrase. Apparently, Sean Feeney was able to find zebras and and icebergs. He just placed them on the screen for us. Thank you, Sean. Um, anyway, I love that analogy. I love everything about that. It's beautiful. Um, let's get in, Frank. There, um, please go ahead, Frank. Yeah, so uh, Leah mentioned that you you spoke about this uh, on a podcast. Uh, so please send me a link to that, Leah, because I'd really love to hear I it say, about. I say the same thing over and over. Yeah. Frank. I, I joke with people. Look, I have five stories, and I've told you four of them. So just, <laughs> just you know, be patient with me. I'm going to repeat. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I hope you don't mind talking about this a little bit here too. So uh, I, I'm a, a musician, and, and I've often wondered, you know, what it is that that people connect with about music or art or, you know, a, a beautiful building or whatever it might be, because there's that kind of deep connection that people feel that almost goes beyond normal, you know, and there's also that kind of question of where creative ideas come from, because they can often seem like what people refer to as a, as, as a download. Uh, so I wondered, you know, do you think there is some connection there between these creative, imaginative, artistic ideas and the, the paranormal sort of aspects of our reality? Oh, absolutely. Frank, again, that's what Mutants and Mystics is all about. It's, 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 a, it's a study of creativity and art 
as a, as a, as a means to express these kinds of experiences. And the power of art is that you don't need to prove anything, right? You're not doing this. You're not turning this into a science. You're turning this into an art form. And the thing about music, which I'm not, I'm not an expert on. I often joke, there were only two classes in the seminary. I got C's in one was Christian ethics <laughs> and the other was musicology. Uh, I just, I suck at both of those things. And, um, but music is basically math uh, and it's entirely non-linguistic, um, you know? And so I think people respond to it on a very bodily and very spiritual level, precisely because it goes entirely outside our rational kind of linear linguistic forms of expression. Um, so I think music, and you know, for most of the history of religions, it was expressed through music, Frank. I mean, that's how they did it. Music and art, by the way. People couldn't read. <laughs> Reading is a very modern kind of skill set, you know, in terms of being widely distributed, but people could, could view art and they could listen to music. And that's how they uh, absorbed these stories and, and became the humans they became. I love it. These questions today have been uh, something else. Um, uh, I sure Nathan feels the same thing I do right now that not only are we honored to have you on and, and have a discussion with us, we're equally honored to have a team like this that put so much thought into what they would discuss with you uh, that uh, I'm feeling that emotion right now. Uh, anyway, so uh, we, I don't want to keep you, uh, more than an hour. Uh, Dan Warren did have another question that uh, we know that I know what your answer is going to be on this because you've basically alluded to it. But he he gave me an article from the Atlanta that says Pope Francis said that he would definitely baptize aliens if they asked him to. So he wanted to get your reaction to that. Well, this this question came up Thursday night. You know, mm -hmm. Brother Consolmania actually wrote a book called something like "Should We Baptize the the ET?" And you know, my answer is no. Uh, the ET does not need to be baptized. I mean, these are human religions. These are not cosmic religions. And the first thing you learn as a comparativist is actually they're not even human. They're just one culture, cultural approximation of something. Um, you know, so no, don't don't baptize the ET. Um, doesn't need to be. Um, and, and that's an imposition, frankly, of one cultural story on another species that is totally inappropriate. Nathan's going, amen, right now, he's saying, <laughs> uh, as a fellow seminarian. Um, so it, a couple of quick hitter follow-ups on something you said when you were talking about the nihilism, you're talking about the state of the students today. Is that rooted in our cultural divide in that red, white, political crap? Is that the root of it, or is it? I think, I think it's part of it. I think that's part of it. But I also think science and technology are part of the problem. Uh, I mean, they give us so much. I, I, I'm not anti-science or anti-technology, but the, 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 the worldview they push is pretty nihilistic, you know? Um, and, you know, my joke is always, we can build refrigerators, therefore materialism is true. <laughs> yeah. It, I love it. Yeah, it drop right. it's, it's funny because it doesn't follow at all. But that's right. what, that's what people assume. 
they assume, oh, because we can make technology and we have science, uh, materialism must be true. And I'm like, no, it's pragmatic. It's pragmatically true. It's, it's helpful. useful. But there are all kinds of other things that happen that don't fit into this materialist paradigm. And you're just ignoring. They're, it's not your refrigerator. Um, it's, quite, it's quite convenient. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I've got some uh, another follow up on um, what you said in the beginning after the first question is just uh, the possession issue. You seem to be indicating that it is a reflection of us to a degree because we we're, and, you know, we form a union with it. That's what allows it. You know, you have to allow it in. The second part of that that I want to add. And, and again, I don't want to take up too much of your time today, um, but is uh is there an NHI? Is there a non-human intelligence? Do you think that that is part of that? I think it could be superhuman. And okay. what I mean by that is it's clearly communicating with us. So it, it, it clearly shares something with us. And I, I think sometimes it is us. I think it's some dissociated or sets or part of us that has been separated off because of trauma and suffering, what a psychiatrist would call dissociation. But I think sometimes it might be the world of the dead, frankly. It might be an ancestor. It might be a, some kind of superhuman intelligence, by, by which I simply mean it's, it's outside or beyond us. Um, I, I, really, okay. I really do suspect that. I don't mean to suggest there's nothing ontologically separate from us. Of course, there is. Um, but I think we should be very careful about attributing agency to something that we actually don't know anything when we know very little about. Um, that's, that's fair. Yeah. And I'll give you just a simple example. A few years ago, I was a judge on this panel on, on the survival of bodily death. And it was obvious that the essays broke down into two schools of thought. One, one's called the spirit hypothesis, which is, you know, there are spirits in the room or spirits speaking through the, the medium or the person or possessing this person. And the other hypothesis is, um, is, is called the LAH, the living agent hypothesis. And that's that the, the spirit phenomena is a function of, of a living human being uh, in the same vicinity. So for example, the poltergeist phenomena, I mean, originally I think our ancestors thought that this was an angry or noisy ghost in the house or in the room. But when we really started to look at it, we realized pretty quickly that actually this is an adolescent or a teenager that's under some kind of trauma or stress or, and they're manifesting this physical phenomena, which is very real by the way, but it seems to be some kind of exteriorized emotion again, or trauma or, or sexuality, frankly. Um, so I think that's an open question. And I don't think we have an answer to that. And I don't want to take a position because I, I don't know. But I think you're not, I'm just sorry, you're not closed off to though it possibly, oh, no. I think that aligns with Nathan's hypothesis, but a non-human intelligence looking for an in. Looking yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not closed minded or closed to that possibility at all. I just think we have to be really careful about that because sure. I know, I know too much about history and how human beings have demonized other don't twist that. experiences. And I just, please don't do that. And don't demonize your own experience. But also don't deny that it's, it's negative or, or even evil sometimes. But 
you know, one of the, the, the first lessons that, that in the study of religion is that the sacred is not the good. The, the holy is not the ethical. The holy or the sacred is the powerful. It's the powerful presence. And it can harm you and terrorize you as easily as it can save or be beneficent to you. And it's the response, it's the human response that creates the awe or the terror. It's probably not the presence. Um, so I would just, you know, I would warn people uh, to just be more sophisticated there. And I think our culture as a whole just thinks that holiness is 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 happiness. It's it's being a good, nice person. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> Sorry, that's just not true. <laughs> I, that was that was a, a great answer, and it really left it open. But uh, I'm sure Nathan's gonna was doing a lot of amens during that part. Uh, does anyone have any final quick hitters for uh, Jeff before we announce the winner of the free passes? And then we'll uh, go with Cabby goodbyes just after that. No, okay. Uh, Nathan, if you would do the honor, sir. Yes. Uh, so uh, thank you to Sean Feeney, who was able to list out uh, 10 of your works, uh, Jeff, during the course of this interview. So he will be the recipient of the two all-inclusive uh, passes for that uh, conference. So very excited to award those to you. Sean, we'll get this to you as soon as we can. Uh, thanks for watching and thanks for submitting those responses. Uh, this has been quite a show, Jeff. Really great to talk with you. We could go on for many, many hours, yes, um, and I hope we get a chance to speak with you again. Yeah, um, let's do it again. I, I really enjoyed it. You you ask really good questions. I can tell instantly whether a host has read anything or thought through anything. And I assure you, sometimes they haven't. <laughs> uh, this this is this is the very opposite of that. So thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, why don't we start with our cabbie goodbyes, DJ? We'll start down with uh, Frank. Maybe work our Please. way up. Yes, yes, sir. Please, Frank. Yeah, I just want to say thank you very much. I've I've been really looking forward to getting to ask you a couple of questions since I heard you on uh, James Iron Dolly's show. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been a real pleasure. So thank you very much, and uh, goodbye for now. Matt Knapp. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, your insight and sharing your thoughts on these subjects and putting up with our questions and <laughs> all the questions. I, I'm sure you are very inundated with uh, tons and tons of emails and people wanting to reach out to you. Uh, I just want to ask one quick thing while we're saying goodbye. I am one of the people that have not read any of your books. Where would be a good place for me to start? Yeah. So the, 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 the one book I always suggest is called secret body and the reason I suggest that it's the book of all the books that I've written, it goes through all the books and it explains why I wrote each one. And so you kind of get the whole thing, Matt, mm -hmm. and then you can focus in on whatever you want. Um, so I, I, that's what I would suggest. If you want a short book, there's a short book called The Flip, which I also often suggest. It's, it's little. You can do it in an afternoon. Secret Body is big, um, but it gets you get the whole shebang. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Uh, that is amazing. Leah Prime, go ahead, ma'am. Yep. Uh, Dr. Pipel, thank you again so, so much. Um, the flip is the one that I pass along to all my friends who are on that slow slide from materialism to uh, mysterious. Yeah. <laughs> um, certainly, certainly was formative for me. Um, really enjoyed this conversation. Really appreciate the generosity of time. Thanks again. Yeah, of course. Debs. 
Well, I barely got to touch the tip of the iceberg of the questions, but I wanted to say thank you for being part of our collective consciousness and protecting the archives that are part of it as well. And thank you for coming and talking to us today. Thank you. Money. Thank you so much for co-creating with us today uh, and engaging in the activity of co-creation and modeling how it, it, it should be, you know, we've often, I think, uh, mistaken the sacred for the building or the book instead of the relationship. And uh, it's in those relationships and that vulnerability and that exchange where really the power emerges. And uh, I felt that today and I'm really grateful for that. So looking forward to uh, continuing to follow your work and, and uh, continuing the conversation. Thanks, Nathan. Jeff, uh, one of the things that uh, in presenting your artwork here today, there's a tremendous amount of work that went into that, meaning you read and studied and thought a lot and invested a lot of capital that is within you in your, you know, in your spirit, in your emotion and in your, uh, your mind to create uh, ideas about what you've seen unfold in life and try to help us to figure out what has happened, what is happening, and, and perhaps, you know, us ponder what will happen. And I really appreciate it. And the audience, you know, should recognize what it took Jeff to get to this point to become one of these people that it is helps us develop what our philosophies are, because without him, you know, we're bouncing it off others and you need to engage with people that, that have put in more work uh, than you have. Uh, and in and in this case, you've put in a hell of a lot more work than I have. Um, <laughs> but I, I really do appreciate it. I'm honored that you would join us. And um, uh, we like to say sometimes in, in cab, we keep it short, but we, we always leave them wanting more. And we hope that you'll come back and do a part two with us. Yeah, I first of all, absolutely. Let's do a part two. But you know, the, the work, first of all, it's 30 years or 35 or 40 or whatever. It's 40 years now. But our culture has supported that. And, you know, I mean, I work in the university and I have a job because of our culture. And so there's this weird, there's this weird thing where the culture demeans and dismisses, but also supports and encourages. And I, I also often say I love, I love academics. I love intellectuals. And I, I really do. I think they're trying to do the right thing. And again, our cultures and our, our states and our, our countries support this in some weird way. So I, I think it's complicated. And I, I do what I do because people allow me to do it. And, you know, I don't have to worry about a roof over my head or, or food on the table. So I, 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 I just it, it's complicated is all I want to say. Yeah, it certainly is. But we, and we need people to help us to unravel it, to sort of provoke us to think about these issues. And without folks like yourself, we're about to have uh, Professor Esbjorn Hargens. We've had uh, Diana Walsh Pasolka on, you know, that 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 really helps us and the community. So well, we're, we're very proud of you. And, you know, like Matt Knapp down there, we see that you, you can bring these communities together, UFOs, paranormal we had somebody from the Bigfoot community who's been in it for a couple of decades, and that's what we endeavor to do here. And, yeah. Um, well, apologize to Sean. I screwed his name up. 
And uh, Diana's a dear friend. I, I've known Diana for years. So I, all those people are, are friends. And again, that's what I mean by I love and I love these people. They're, they're trying to do the right thing. Yep. We really appreciate you guys. So uh, with that, uh, Sean Feeney, uh, Nathan, if he hasn't already got a hold of you, Will, you are the winner. And on behalf of uh, Julie in the chat, Dr. Kripal, Frank, Matt, Leah, Deb, and Money Nathan, this is DJ saying peace out, one love. We'll see you down the road. And as always, we're wondering what's up around the bend. Oh.